As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt. Today's episode is a little bit different from normal, as we're going to begin a short series sharing a recent conversation John had with Lord Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal. As well as a highly distinguished cosmologist and astrophysicist, Martin is also an author whose recent books have explored some themes familiar to matters of life and death listeners, including the rise of artificial intelligence and the future of humanity. Their chat was first broadcast as part of the Big Conversation podcast, hosted by Justin Briley and also part of the Premier Unbelievable Network. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Big Conversation from Premier Unbelievable in partnership with John Templeton Foundation. I'm Justin Briley and today I'm joined by Lord Martin Rees and Dr John Wyatt to discuss robots, transhumanism and life beyond Earth. Astronomer Royal Lord Martin Rees and Christian bioethicist Dr John Wyatt have both been writing about the future in recent years. John Wyatt's book The Robot Will See You Now explores where technology and transhumanism is taking humanity from a Christian perspective. He regularly explores issues of technology and bioethics with his journalist son Tim on their Matters of Life and Death podcast, also available from Premier Unbelievable. As well as holding the position of Astronomer Royal, Lord Martin Rees is a former Master of Trinity College, Cambridge and former President of the Royal Society. And his recent books, such as On the Future, Prospects for Humanity, explore futuristic themes, including the prospects for humanity in the age of robots, transhumanism and AI. Well, during today's show, we'll also respond to a few clips from interviews that I conducted a few years ago with robotics experts Nigel Crook and David Levy, but which are very relevant to today's conversation. So look out for those later. We'll also be asking questions like, is artificial intelligence a friend or foe of human flourishing? Does faith have any part to play in the robotics revolution and the race to upgrade our bodies and even escape our planet? And what does the future hold for humans? So Martin and John, welcome along to the show. Yes, thanks very much. It's good to be here. Very good to be joining you. Thanks for joining us. Um, Martin, tell us, tell us first of all about the book you wrote a few years now, though you, there's a recent new edition with a new preface uh, on the future. What, what made a renowned physicist and an astronomer want to look at what the future holds for, for life on Earth? I think I've always been uh, concerned with these broader issues. I remember going back to CND demonstrations when I was a student, Pugwash conferences in the 1980s and 90s. And then in more recent times, I was president of the Royal Society, which meant I had uh, even an obligation 
to get engaged with these more social issues. And being an astronomer, I think one has a slightly special perspective because uh, one is aware of the vastness of space and one's aware in particular of a far future. To expand on this slightly, I think most of us are aware that we're the outcome of four billion years of Darwinian selection here on Earth. But all too many people think that somehow we humans are the culmination, the top of the tree. No astronomer can believe that because we know that the sun is less than halfway through its life and the universe may have an infinite time ahead of it. And so I think we all realize that uh, we are an intermediate stage. But we're a very important stage because this century is the first when one species, namely the human species, can determine the entire planet's fate. Because there are more of us, we're more empowered by technology, which is advancing fast. And that was really the theme of my book on the future, uh, what is going to happen this century and uh, why we are going to have a very bumpy ride, in my view. Yeah, it's a very, very well written book. Very, very readable indeed. But you do interestingly just mention God towards the end of the book. Um, uh, you say you're not a believer, but you do appreciate taking part in the rituals of the Anglican Church. So what, what's your sort of relationship with faith up to up to this point, Martin? Well, I think my view is I um, uh, um, participate in the ritual of the Church of England. I was brought up in that. Had I grown up in Iran, I would in the same spirit have gone to the mosque uh, because I value religious uh, ritual and practice as something which uh, brings us all together when so much divides us and which makes us aware of our heritage from generations past when so many things are, are transient. Uh, so I have um, those views, but I don't uh, believe any religious dogma because being a scientist, I know that even hydrogen atom is pretty hard for most people to understand. So I'm very, very skeptical indeed of anyone <laughs> having anything more than a very incomplete metaphorical view of any deep aspect of reality. Well, so I wouldn't say I'm a believer in any particular religion. Well, it's fa fascinating anyway to, to, to be able to have you on the show today to explore some of the ethical issues that arise from the way technology is going. Um, and perhaps we'll come back to some of how that integrates with uh, faith issues and that sort of thing later on in the show. But um, John, welcome to the show as well. It's, it's great to have you on. Um, you, you, you've you been writing about the future as well with the robot we'll see you now. What, what made you want to delve into that particular area? Yes, thanks, Justin. And it's just great to be in this conversation with Martin. I've uh, sat in the audience and listened to him speak a number of times and uh, engaged in, in previous conferences. But um, my background is I'm a medic. Uh, by background, I, I uh, specialised in the care of newborn babies and in uh, providing um, uh, very technologically based medicine. And I, and I went into that field because I loved children and it was a very exciting and interesting rapidly developing field and it's really only after I was in that field that I realized I was in an ethical maelstrom there were all kinds of uh, new challenging ethical issues about the implications of advancing technology and so increasingly I've moved away from the frontline clinical work and really focused on those ethical problems and particularly the fascinating thing to me is that as technology advances it raises very fundamental age-old questions. And in particular, I think two age-old questions it raises, which I suspect we'll continue to discuss uh, today. One is, what does it mean to be a human being? How do we understand our humanity 
in the face of ever-increasing technology? And two, what kind of society do we want to build for the future? And, and so as I've been reflecting on these kind of issues, I, I uh, like Martin, think that developments in artificial intelligence and robotics are extraordinarily significant, uh, particularly for the future. And so this book uh, was a very preliminary attempt to try to raise some of the issues. Just to, uh, I, I and my co-authors, I edited this book with a number of other academics. Uh, we felt that it was a kind of scoping exercise. It was just trying to lay out a range of issues which uh, advances in technology were going to raise for the future and which, in particular, I felt it was really important for people like myself who have a Christian commitment uh, and and um, somehow think, how on earth do we relate this ancient religion and faith which has been around for thousands of years with these completely new challenging developments in AI. Well, it, it is a fa another fascinating book full of lots of different insights from different authors. So uh, I will make sure there are links to both both of your books from today's show um, with your different perspectives on. I thought just something that might be... Go, sorry, go ahead, Martin. You wanted to, to, to engage there. Well, I wanted to say how fascinating I found the chapters in, uh, in your book. It was a really fascinating book and introduction to these concepts. Yeah, and and uh, and I thought what we might do just to begin is is actually just to get the conversation going. Um, look at a little bit of a fun interview I had with a, a robot myself a, a few years ago. This is a clip from 2018 when I interacted with Now, um, courtesy of robotics expert Nigel Crook from Oxford Brookes University. So let's just watch this interaction. Well, I'm going to have a little chat with Now, who looks very cute. And he's looking at me now. Is that he's noticing where the sound's coming from? Yes, Is that right, Nigel? That's right. He's hearing your voice. Yeah. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. What's your favourite colour? The camera in my head can see lots of colour. I like them all. Do you know what you were created for? I was created to interact with people in different ways. For example, I think I could be a pretty good radio presenter. You'll be after my job next. I am doing well. Thank you for asking. Do you think artificial intelligence will benefit the human race? Do you think artificial intelligence will benefit the human race? AI is already helping people in lots of ways. For example, AI programs can diagnose some human diseases better than human experts. Ask me another question. Well, here's one. Can a robot have a soul? No, I don't think robots can have a soul. But some functions that are traditionally ascribed to the soul could be simulated, such as emotions. Well, there you go. Uh, just a little bit of, of what was possible then, and, and it's only advanced uh, in the years since. Um, Voice-activated devices, robotics, becoming ever more advanced. Um, I mean, maybe starting with you, Martin, what are some of the things you feel we're benefiting from with this advance in robotics and AI 
uh, currently? Well, clearly, the reason that uh, AI is so impressive in many ways is because of the speed of computers. It can assimilate and analyze huge amounts of data, um, and it can learn the rules of games and learn protein folding and things like that. So it's the speed that gives it a huge advantage. And of course, in linguistics, I say I'm not an expert at all on this issue, um, it can study uh, huge amounts of text. It learns to translate by looking at uh, a billion pages of documents in one language and another. I believe it's used European Union documents. It's boredom threshold infinite, so it can learn by those. Um, but uh, it's the speed that gives it an advantage. But um, I am a, a big skeptic about the extent to which uh, robots will ever resemble humans, because what they do is they um, understand words, how words link together, syntax, etc., and the latest ones are therefore able to uh, produce a whole paragraph of uh, what looks like normal English prose, etc. Um, and um, uh, they would be able, similarly, to perhaps compose um, a, a bit of dialogue for a, a play, a conversation between two people, um, and they'd be able to write that. And that's something which they can do just by understanding words, not by having any view of what the reality is behind mm. them. And so I think when we consider the Turing test um, or uh, observe the sort of conversation you just had, uh, then um, that's happening. It doesn't mean that the machine has any concept of the real things behind those words. It just knows how to string together words. Uh, and do you think, though, that we will get to the point where a machine could, in principle, understand the meaning behind the words, as well as simply being able to replicate effectively what, what looks like comprehensible text. I really doubt that, unless they can interact with the external world through senses and actually understand and have concepts of the world um, that, that we do. And, and that's very, very different. Uh, a computer in a box will never be able to do that. So I'm very sceptical about these things. What, what's your position on that, John? Well, again, and I, I would say that I'm not a, a technical expert in terms of the, all the complexities of machine learning and so on. But um, from a general perspective, I completely agree with Martin. And I think my major concern is that these things can be incredibly deceptive. And that's because we as human beings have a we're hardwired to coin a phrase to um, anthropomorphize it to in other words, to see a human resemblance and uh, and respond to it as though it was human and and there's an interesting story right from the very dawn of computing that one of the great computer pioneers joseph weizenbaum produced a program called eliza which was a, a very crude um program which just a text-based program which was supposed to respond like a psychiatrist so it, it, it said tell you my neck tell you you know how was your day today and you said uh, I have had a good day, you typed in, and then it says, uh, why did you have a good day? Or why do you think you had a good day? And it was very, very simplistic. But <laughs> Weizenbaum left this program running, and his secretary uh, in the lab, who wasn't a computer expert at all, started typing into it. And, and basically, she started developing this intimate relationship with this 
very simplistic program, so much so that she was asking Weizenbaum to leave the laboratory while she was having this private conversation. <laughs> and he was quite sort of, he wrote up, you know, I hadn't realised how the power of a very simple program in, in promoting, I think he said, delusional beliefs in those who use it. So I, I think ever since, and, and computer scientists talk about the ELISA effect, that that even quite simple programs can be very, very powerful. And so as the technology improves and as this sort of simulation becomes more and more effective, I do see a um, I, I see real issues rising in the future. I mean, it, just recently we've had the story of the Google engineer who felt that one of these more sophisticated versions of, of what you were having a conversation with had actually become sentient and and had therefore had to be given had to be protected from harm and and so there's a there's a hugely deceptive element here isn't there? the potential for abuse seems to me enormous yes but i think it is uh, uh delusional uh, in many ways uh, to, to to think that these uh, entities are are really having feelings etc um, the, the problem is it's almost as though as human beings we are set up for this delusion yes. and and it's interesting looking at the ways that the very youngest babies interact with the world the fascinating thing is that they are the the very first uh, reaching out to the world of a newborn baby is in is in terms of relations in other words it actually it's looking for human faces and and responding in a relational way mm -hmm. so so this ability to determine something that appears to be human and then to respond to it um, is very deeply part of our humanity you're listening to matters of life and death a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. I wonder if we could maybe even now then turn to our next clip, because this very much um, looks at the whole issue of whether computers, AI, robots could pass the so-called Turing test, which is this sort of idea that robots will become indistinguishable from humans. Um, again, this, this is a clip of Nigel Crook, but also David Levy talking about these issues. Obviously, now is, in a sense, a very simple version of what is achievable with robotics. Um, do you think we are anywhere near the point at which that the Turing test could be passed at some point where someone could interact with a, a humanoid robot and be unaware that it's a robot, think that they're actually interacting with a human? Uh, I, I think we're a long way from that, actually. Um, there have been recent claims that the Turing test has been passed, um, but uh, the, there's been a lot of questions about whether that actually is the case because the scenario that was used um, was a setup essentially to uh, to fool the the person who was making that decision as to whether they were talking to a human or, or an AI. Um, we we have such a long way to go to uh, even begin to uh, approach human level general intelligence that I think. Um, it's, a, it's a long road. In the area of speech recognition and human-computer conversation, uh, the technology is fairly primitive. Um, however, I think that will develop, and I think that within probably within about 20 years or so, the Turing test will have been passed. People won't be able to tell whether they're having a conversation with a human or with a, an AI. 
Um, and I think the same is true of the appearance and movement and behavior of robots. I think they'll be incredibly human-like by the middle of this century to the point where people will be falling in love with them and marrying them. So there we go. Um, that that that's that's two uh, two views from two different people, quite quite different in in many ways. Uh, I wonder who you agree with more, Martin. First of all, of of those two views on whether robots will pass the Turing test and so on. Yes. Well, let me say I'm not an expert at all. But my view is, even if they do, this doesn't at all mean that they are actually thinking or feeling in a way that a human is. So uh, I think uh, uh, the Turing test is actually a rather low bar compared to uh, seeing if the, these are entities that we need to uh, take account of, should we worry about their welfare, should we fret if they're unemployed or bored, etc. I don't think we're going to ever have to worry about that, even if they can simulate conversation in a way that uh, we can't distinguish from a human behind a screen. Is that because, in principle, you don't think a robot can attain consciousness in the way that a human being can? Well, I don't think the kind of robot that's based on the sort of digital technology that we use could. I mean, maybe one day it'll be possible to uh, understand how the brain works and uh, simulate all the connections, etc., and create some um, um, post-human entity uh, which uh, perhaps will have feelings because uh, uh, it's a long philosophical debate about whether consciousness and self-awareness is an emergent property or whether it's specific to the uh, flesh and blood that our brains are made of. Uh, we don't know the answer. Um, it's perfectly possible that there could be entities which are superhuman in most of their manifestations but nonetheless are zombies and have no self-awareness. And um, to digress slightly, um, I've talked about um, post-human evolution on Earth and far beyond and um, uh, mentioned these points and get a bimodal response from people who listen to me. Uh, one is to say, um, isn't it uh, wonderful that we are just a stage towards the emergent of uh, um, bigger and better brains, etc. Others say, well, um, if these entities are just zombies, they may behave super intelligently, but if they are not able to appreciate the wonder and mystery of the cosmos, then how sad that they are to be our descendants. And so it, it, this is mm. a, a question which does affect the way we react to these scenarios. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and and I, I mean, it'd be interested in your response to that, John. Do you think there could be consciousness or do you think that is a uniquely, I don't know, human or biological trait? Well, you know, the more I've gone into this and read and, and reflected about it, the more I sense this is a very deep, deep, dark hole into which it's almost impossible to think your way out of it. Because this is what philosophers call the problems of other minds. The only consciousness of which I am aware is actually the consciousness that is going on within me at the moment. We don't eat, we never have any real understanding of anybody, any other human being's consciousness. And so, mm, yes. of course, we assume, I assume, and actually, it, I think, again, we're made to assume, we're hardwired to assume that what's going on in your head is very similar to what's going on in my head. Um, but interestingly, medically, there is no 
uh, knockdown medical test for consciousness. In fact, I have to say, when you, you know, with all our clever scans and everything else, the most sophisticated test we have is basically you prod someone, and if they go, ouch, then medically we say, yes, this person is conscious. You know, it's a very sophisticated kind of level of... And, and um, so when you then ask the question, well, what does it mean, could a computer be conscious, and how could we ever know... This is where I think it all gets deeply, deeply problematic because what I guarantee, and I think the Google, what we, the, just the episode we've just seen with the Google engineer is a kind of hint of what is to come. And that is that, that as these systems become more and more sophisticated and human-like, more and more people in our society are going to say, I don't mind what you clever scientists say. As far as I am concerned, this is a person. This is... Uh, this is conscious, this is sentient, and I insist that we as a society do something about it. And interestingly, there is no kind of knockdown test that anybody can do and say, I can prove to you that, it, that this machine is not conscious. So, in other words, it becomes much more a question of the, the surface appearance, and, and, or to use a long word, the phenomenology, of the experience than, than it is what actually is happening underneath. Mm. Any thoughts on that, Martin? Well, I, I agree completely with that. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, people may uh, will start to consider the feelings and uh, the satisfactions being derived by adequate stimulus of these robots, etc. Um, and, of course, uh, uh, this does affect very much the extent to which you are happy to uh, be cared for by a robot as against a human being. You want to feel they somehow empathize with you. And um, whether it's true or not, what you think about it does make a difference. Yes. I mean, to, to that extent, Martin, do you think that we are going to be happy to simply increasingly engage with robots, engage with automated answer phones, algorithms, you know, to, to the extent that we won't necessarily know when we phone up a company, whether we're talking to a, a you know, a, an algorithm or, or a human. Uh, will it make any difference ultimately to us? Well, I think it will. I mean, I think it's rather regrettable. But if you think of the, uh, um, the, the role of uh, robots as carers, uh, then um, in some contexts, obviously, we'd welcome it. I mean, to deal with bedpans and things like that, probably you'd rather have a robot. But I think uh, to have someone who's actually going to be um, someone to think um, uh, of your welfare, etc., you want it to be a real human being. And uh, as we observe, uh, when we look at rich people who have the choice, they always choose to have real people to look after them, uh, not a robot in the way that the Japanese are forced to. Um, so um, to uh, link this with the thought about call centers and all that, uh, one thing I dis discuss in my book is that I think it would be a real win-win situation if um, uh, the uh, robots, um, no, the companies that make the robots and these big multinational conglomerates were properly taxed. And the taxation revenue was to fund huge numbers of dignified jobs for carers, teachers' assistants, gardeners in public parks, and people like that, where being human is important, and provide those jobs for those made unemployed by the automation of Amazon warehouses and call centers. 
so that would be win-win if the people in those mind-numbing jobs um, could be replaced by robots um, and they could be provided with dignified jobs um, from the public purse to look after people. It's, it's an interesting way of, of trying to, to, to deal with it. We're, we're going to go to a quick break and we'll come back to talk more about the whole issue of uh, robots now caring for people increasingly. We've got another clip from our other guests uh, and we'll, we'll watch that. But we'll continue the conversation on robots, transhumanism and even life beyond Earth as well with Martin Rees and John White in just a moment's time. Actually, you'll have to wait a little bit longer than that, but we will bring you the next part of the big conversation between Martin, Reese, and John on next week's show. For now though, thanks for listening, and as always, don't forget there's plenty of other resources on this theme on John's website. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.